All right, good afternoon. Now we're on to chapter seven, economic systems, and we're going to kind of review some of the details uh, that were presented on hunting and gathering societies, horticultural societies, pastoral societies in chapter six. So we're talking about the allocation of resources, and here we're talking essentially about the means of production, land, uh, and how uh, land is made available. Historically, that's been uh, the most crucial thing uh, people have had to work with through time. Uh, of course, today, uh, land isn't the only kind of uh, resource. We have other capital resources, uh, such as uh, money and things of that nature. The conversion of resources, that is the activities people engage in to uh, convert um, land, uh, whether it's growing crops uh, or hunting and gathering or herding cattle into resources needed by families. Uh, the distribution of goods and services, uh, that is, uh, Part of the um, uh, society's production, which is we'll see in the conversion of resources. The other part of an economic system is the movement of goods and services. And services, goods clearly are pretty easy to understand. They have to do with things, food, uh, for example. And services, uh, these are activities where you help or assist or give your labor to uh, someone else. Uh, outside your uh, family or even within your family. And then some of the worldwide trends towards uh, commercialization, especially uh, the issue of globalization, which is um, very important politically and economically as we engage in different kinds of trade agreements. And also uh, part of it has to do with um, the movement of people uh, to take advantage of economic opportunities. Uh, and I'll remind you all that um, this is how um, our nation was built. Uh, people uh, in Europe and, and other uh, parts of the globe saw opportunities over here uh, that weren't in their own countries. And as a consequence, they settled uh, in our country, creating uh, who we are today. Today, um, travel is much more efficient. And so we have the phenomena of migratory labor. That is, people who come to uh, a rich nation like our nation or some places in, in Europe uh, to work for a time and then return home. They typically send uh, their uh, their funds back to their families uh, to help support them, and this is enabled uh, by you know much more efficient um, uh, transportation system that we have today compared to the past. So these are the issues that we're going to deal with in chapter seven. Uh, so we're talking about um, um, access to land. Uh, in foragers, uh, there pretty much uh, wasn't any private ownership of land. Uh, anybody in the group could go out, hunt, gather fish. Uh, bring back uh, what they uh, what they brought in. Although there was an expectation that is, if you brought in a lot, uh, then you would share it with people outside of your family. With horticulturalists, uh, we began to get uh, a little bit moved towards the development of private property. Uh, that is, um, if you were farming a, a stretch of land, uh, then uh, you would have possession to that land, but only that land that you're actually working on. And you couldn't preemptively say, you know. I'm not only going to have this land right here that I'm currently cropping, but this land, this area of forest over here that I plan to crop in. And so uh, what you essentially possessed was what you were working on, and you couldn't exclude others uh, by saying that, you know, you can't farm over there, even though I'm not farming over there right now, because sometime in the future I might like to farm there, etc. Uh, we'll move to uh, pastoral people, then ownership becomes uh, really, really interesting, because um, different uh, tribal groups communally own um, pastures uh, that uh, members can um, uh, use 
uh, to the exclusion of other groups. Uh, and um, what we know from the studies of pastoralists is they tend to be uh, very warlike. Uh, they tend to raid uh, one another for their uh, cattle resources. They're, you know, uh, a rich resource. They're easy to transport because they can walk. You don't have to carry them. Uh, and so we get more kind of a, the development of um, private property. And intensive agriculturalists, then we get uh, the development of uh, private property, but it can be really complex. Typically, uh, people own the land uh, that uh, they farm on, and they can exclude others uh, from using that land. Uh, but uh, throughout history, uh, the owners of the land were not the people who cultivated the land, but some uh, wealthy uh, lord or king or prince or earl or duke or, you know, and this occurred uh, in Europe and Southeast Asia, um, all over the world. And essentially, uh, peasants had the right to work the land, but they had to give up food supplies to the Lord uh, in exchange uh, for that uh, for that right. And so uh, with intensive agriculturalists, then we do really get um, uh, the development of private property and uh, a group of individuals sometimes uh, poor farmers who really only have rights to work the land owned by other people in exchange for some kind of a taxation. And then um, further on, as colonialism and imperialism spread, uh, the state uh, you know, began to have different sorts of rights to uh, land, uh, and uh, we'll explore this uh, issue a little bit later on. Um, so in the conversion of resources in all societies, resources have to be transformed or converted through labor into food, tools, and other uh, goods. And so this will be called production, you know, what you do for a living, um, how you engage the, uh, the land through horticulture, pastoralism, hunting and gathering, things of that nature. Uh, and the conversion of these resources have to do with, you know, once produced, where do they go? Uh, throughout most of human history, they've gone to... Uh, one's family. Uh, that is, they're used to um, um, satisfy basic uh, nutritional uh, needs of the family. Uh, in uh, some systems, uh, we have this sort of tributary system uh, where we have social complexity uh, developing and essentially um, individual producers would have to pay part of what they produce to uh, a lord who may technically own the land or control the land. Uh, and this is what we call a tributary system. Uh, and in industrial systems uh, here, we engage in production that is essentially off the land. Uh, that is, we work for some kind of uh, monetary award for money. Uh, and money comes into play a little bit later in human history. We'll talk about that a bit further on. Uh, but basically, uh, you use your labor to get money, then use that money to buy food and shelter. And then we have uh, this kind of post-industrial uh, situation. Uh, where, uh, you know, the service industry uh, begins to become more important. For example, I'm a member of the service industry. I'm a teacher. I provide a service called uh, education. And so as we become more efficient in producing food, people are freed up, as it were, to engage in other kinds of economic uh, transactions. And fa uh, finally, uh, telecommuting, which is a really interesting phenomenon. Uh, essentially, you don't have to be present at your workplace. You can be present at home and uh, do work uh, mainly through um, the, the internet and other um, uh, communication uh, technologies. So these are sorts of, uh, and if you look at this uh, pattern, you know, this is early on uh, to uh, later on through time. These are kinds of historical, cultural, evolutionary trends. 
Um, conversion of resources is incentive for labor is forced and required labor, division of labor, organization of labor, and making decisions about work. So what the next set of slides is going to be talking about is um, these sorts of activities. Uh, what, in, what, what incentives are there to um, uh, people to work? And throughout most of human history has been to feed your own family. Uh, but in some societies, not only do you do that, but you're forced to engage in required labor. Uh, for some uh, powerful political authority. A lot of times it has to do with the development of uh, infrastructure, for example, maintaining roads or irrigation systems. And so we'll talk about these issues uh, in the next set of slides. So, um, but one of the things that was uh, mentioned in the text in one of the highlighted sections has to do with communal ownership. As I mentioned early on, uh, there was essentially no private property. Uh, resources were kind of communally held, that is the group uh, could uh, sometimes, through means of territory, uh, exclude people outside the group uh, from using their hunting and gathering or pastoral resources. But here we're talking about um, a, a, a classic article by Garrett Hardin called Tragedy of the Commons, and it has to do with um, the problem of conservation. Uh, and what he points out, uh, using uh, historical England as an example, there was an area of land that called the commons that uh, anyone had could ac have access to. And it was largely, essentially, uh, grazing areas. And uh, what quickly happened uh, when people had equal uh, access to the commons is that the resources in the commons, the grasslands, was quickly uh, destroyed because there was no restraint on uh, how many uh, cattle or sheep in the case of England, that people could set out uh, to graze, and there was just a positive incentive to, uh, you know, um, have as big a herd as, as possible. And quickly, uh, these uh, commons uh, were um, uh, destroyed in, in that they could no longer kind of offer the uh, grazing opportunities that existed when there were fewer cattle or sheep on the land. Uh, his solution was private uh, property. Uh, that is the idea that if people uh, owned um, sections of the commons, then they could essentially uh, safeguard uh, uh, the, the resources um, in these uh, areas because it would be in their best interest to have, you know, uh, a perpetual uh, amount of grazing areas if you just cut down on the number of, uh, of um, uh, cattle. So there was an incentive to conserve. However, uh, sometimes we do have a community control. Uh, which uh, has to do with regulation of exploitation. And there are some examples about you know, fishing resources in Palau and, and Alaska. And the, the, the idea, I, I think, uh, is that not necessarily does um, private property is the only solution, but some kind of regulation through community control of people and their uh, exploitations uh, what we call common good uh, resources. So it's really clear that regulation, uh, whether it's in the hands of uh, private individuals or uh, a community, are key to maintaining um, uh, the, the conservation, the integrity of, uh, of ecosystems. Um, division of labor. Uh, you know, this is how tasks are assigned in society. It's based essentially uh, on gender and age. There's also a mention of efficiency and optimal foraging theory. I've written a couple uh, pieces on this in relation to uh, the hunting activities of the, um, uh, of the Anamamo and, 
in in the equina uh, kind of out of place here it seems to me but what it really does point out is that um, uh, people in simple societies are very good at uh, maximizing their net rates of return which is a microeconomic idea that people uh, try to get the greatest amount of return uh, they can get when they're doing something like agriculture or hunting uh, because of how selective they are in what they do. So, um, yeah, this is uh, a true. It's uh, shown to be true for modern firms and and individuals, hunters and gatherers. But uh, I think the more important, uh, the more interesting thing is um, uh, the the division of labor uh, because uh, it's changing through time. We'll talk about this next. Here's what you have in your textbook. It talks about uh, men and women, young and old, um, agricultural production hunting, fishing, food gathering, kind of hard to understand. Uh, but basically, um, what this shows in the next slide I'm going to show you, I think is much more uh, revealing. Uh, but that, um, you know, kids um, do a, uh, a lot of economic activities. We sometimes back in the day call them chores. And they contribute to the household economy. Uh, they do activities that don't require a lot of strength or a lot of skill. And as they get older, then uh, they uh, move into activities as adult males or females into activities that require more skill and uh, and more strength. And so kids are, you know, part of the uh, natural uh, uh, economy, uh, and they have been throughout uh, um, uh, most of human history. But I think what's more interesting is we look at the division of labor. And so we see, you know, as you look at the top left, uh, a certain kind of activity called hunting dominated by males. And you look at the bottom right uh, down here, um, you know, cooking dominated by females. And so you, we, what are the theories? Why do we have this kind of division of labor that is, you know, from a sample of, um, uh, you know, cross-cultural studies? One idea uh, the, the textbook mentions is that men are stronger and as a consequence they engage in things like hunting, metalwork, stonework, mining, land clearance, uh, the tending of large animals, uh, which, uh, you know, require physical strength. But if you look at large animal tending, you find that, you know, women, they do a lot of this uh, activity in some societies. Uh, both men and women uh, do these activities. Uh, and that, uh, you know, cooking doesn't take a lot of strength, dominated by, by women. Uh, but the explanation I like best is, uh, the idea that women largely are constrained by child care activities. Therefore, they are restricted to activities that uh, permit simultaneous child care. You have to understand that throughout most of human history, uh, women had about six to eight live births through their lifetime. And so uh, in their daily activities, they were essentially always had to essentially mind a child since men didn't do in these activities. So uh, Judith Brown was the one who kind of uh, thought up this, this sort of idea and the idea that uh, women would do those activities that are compatible with simultaneous childcare. And essentially many of these activities have to do with uh, tasks that are done uh, near the home or in the home. Uh, you know, you look at crop planting, but typically uh, in, in, in many societies, the your farm is right next to the house. And so it's easy to essentially care for a child and um, do the um, um, uh, cropping work such as harvesting or weeding. On the other hand, uh, for example, uh, if you're a male uh, trying to carry a child around while you're hunting, 
is going to, one, make you less efficient because the child may make noise, uh, or two, if you're running after an animal, carrying a child on your hip, you're not going to be able to run very effectively, and three, uh, you put that child in danger. The reason I like this uh, activity, as fertility has declined and women only have one to two uh, children, all of a sudden today, uh, they're freed up to engage in activities that were dominated uh, by men. Now, many of this form of domination was through discrimination, but uh, at the same time, uh, if you're a husband and you see that, you know, maybe your wife has an opportunity uh, to engage in a lucrative activity formerly dominated by men, then uh, you might be uh, in favor of changing laws that would ban discrimination. Uh, and so I think the, the uh, nice thing about this model devised by Judith Brown is that it helps us understand the past and it helps us understand the current situation, the division of labor. Okay, so how do goods and services move uh, in a society, especially a society uh, that <clears throat> doesn't have um, money as a means of, of exchange? And so we're going to talk about, as I mentioned before, reciprocity, redistribution, or market or commercial exchange. So reciprocity essentially uh, is giving and taking without the use of money. This is really key. Uh, and so, for example, we talk about two different kinds of reciprocity, generalized and balanced. And generalized reciprocity, uh, essentially one gives without an expectation of uh, immediate return or maybe a return at all. For example, uh, generalized recipro reciprocity occurs uh, among people who are closely related. Uh, for example, um, your grandparents have given you birthday gift after birthday gift after birthday gift, and what they've given to you is largely uh, much more um, costly than what you've given to them, which is maybe a thank you note or a note, you know, a birthday card or something of that nature. And so what we have in... Um, uh, generalized reciprocity is uh, essentially the flow of goods from older to younger members uh, without expectation from the older members that the younger members uh, will, you know, return those sorts of uh, sorts of things. Balanced reciprocity is something that you um, engage in with uh, people who aren't related to you, but you have a social relationship that we'll call friendship. And for example, uh, I have a next door neighbor goes to um, uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, every winter, and while uh, they're there, uh, I uh, make sure that uh, their driveway is plowed and their walk is is, is clean. Uh, when they come back, they don't give me any money, uh, but uh, when I go on vacation in the summer, they collect my mail, uh, watch over my house, make sure the newspapers um, um, picked up, that the trash can is moved back into the garage, and sometimes they move the lawn, and I don't pay them anything. And this is what we call, you know, kind of balanced reciprocity. Uh, the things that you do to help out your friends if they need a ride uh, or something of that nature, uh, you help out. With the, and there's an expectation that um, um, uh, there's going to be a return, but you don't say to your friend, look, I uh, uh, drove you to uh, the uh, to your doctor's appointment, and it cost me about $8, so pay up. Uh, the expectation is that uh, it'll rebalance itself at some later point in time when your friend needs assistance from, your, from you. You'll be there for them. And so, you know, this is a kind of non-monetized uh, dimension of our economy that, you know, works, uh, is very ancient and, uh, and works today. 
Um, redistribution uh, is the accumulation of goods or labor by a particular person or a particular place for the purpose of subsequent distribution. So what you have is essentially, for example, you have a chief. The chief requires that you, on a periodic basis, give him some of your uh, your your crops. He puts it in his storehouse. Uh, and then at some later point, he may use uh, those resources you've given him uh, for a variety of tasks. One thing, for example, is that chieftains tend to be fairly large. And in some areas, uh, there are uh, natural catastrophes that uh, cause the crops to fail. People are in need. And so he'll use that stored wealth to help those people out. So it's a kind of social insurance. He'll also use it, for example, to um, for the common defense, uh, to pay warriors, uh, or on trading expeditions to uh, facilitate trade. And so the idea is that you give into a central um, uh, entity, and then that's redistributed, not necessarily in the amount you gave, for you know the um, the common good. Sometimes the common good is um, maintaining a irrigation system uh, that he'll use the food you've given him uh, to pay the laborers to uh, fix the dam, uh, fix canals, uh, dredge them, things of that nature. And so, what this this has occurred, you know, when societies begin to get a little complex about um, uh, twelve. 10,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture. And another word for it is taxation. And all states, uh, regardless of whether they're capitalistic or, or, or socialistic, depend on taxation to provide typically pro-social benefits, that is, benefits for the common good. And so this is something that wasn't invented recently, uh, but it's um, an old part of human history. Um, more on the distribution of, of uh, goods and services, market or commercial exchange. And the text talks about um, kinds of money, all-purpose versus special-purpose money. We have all-purpose money. That is, we can use money uh, to buy just about anything we would want. There are exceptions. Uh, obviously, for example, you can't use money legally to buy sex uh, or to buy drugs. But uh, barring those uh, two sorts of art, can't use it to buy children. Um, that you want to adopt, for example. Uh, but uh, so we have this kind of all-purpose money. Uh, early on in human history, has specialized special-purpose money that could only be used in a very limited way. For example, to pay for bride price that we'll talk about a little bit later in the course, or for some kind of indemnification if you accidentally or purposely kill someone. Uh, instead of war going on, you could pay up a kind of blood debt. Uh, with it. And then we'll also talk about degrees of commercialization, why do money and market exchanges develop, and possible leveling mechanisms in commercial economies. Um, and so uh, some other topics that, that are mentioned um, are migratory labor, non-agricultural commercial production, supplementary cash crops, and introduction of commercial industrial agriculture. So we want to kind of go through these things one by one. Uh, migratory labor has to do with, uh, you know, some members of the community move to a place that offers the possibility of working for a wage. Uh, you know, examples given were um, of Turkishmen moving into Germany after World War II. Um, now, migratory labor has to be kind of put in a, in a historical context. Way back uh, when the United States was growing, uh, we had people coming over um, from all parts of the world, largely Europe, because of our restrictive um, uh, immigration 
rules because there were superior economic opportunities here than in their home country. Migratory labor works the same way, except there's one little technological change that has to do with the development of cheap uh, transportation. You could go to a country uh, and uh, work there for a while because transportation was easy and send money back home. Some people would stay, as the example of, of uh, Turkish men moving into German after World War II because there was a labor shortage and they later brought their uh, wives and you know started families there. Uh, but uh, migratory labor uh, is a phenomenon that's been going on for a long time and was a phenomenon that uh, essentially uh, built the United States. Um, Another uh, trend that's going on is non-agricultural commercial production. Uh, look at the bullet point down below. Uh, in the U.S., only 2% of the population is engaged in agriculture. At the turn of the century, um, at, from the 1900s, uh, at the start of the 1900s, it was about 80-85% of people worked on the land. And so what we've done is essentially um, created uh, an agricultural uh, production system that's so efficient uh, that there are other kinds of economic opportunities uh, uh, available uh, to people. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, begins with, you know, supplementary cash crops. When people cultivating soil produce a surplus above the subsistence requirements, which is then sold by uh, cash. And so this is kind of like a historical, the section of the, of the text talks about, you know, how this sorts of process Go, comes in uh, to being, uh, and uh, so it, it begins with you know kind of not producing just for your own consumption, but selling it on a market uh, to get resources that you need, like perhaps steel goods. Uh, and it talks about you know rubber collection in the Amazon by the uh, Munduruku in, in the text as an example of how former subsistence groups are integrated into a world economic system uh, by selling uh, some of what they produce to get modern goods that they otherwise would not have had. And now what happens is they're dependent on outside resources because they can no longer produce um, the uh, goods they need to cultivate their land because they're now relying on steel goods instead of wood or stone goods 